Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf, and unfortunately today my co-host Jenny Taylor had to tend to some family and will not be joining us today. However, with me today... I have a woman who I've admired for quite a few years. I didn't know very much about Mary Crafts until a friend of mine had shared with me a podcast. And I started listening to that podcast and I was amazed by this woman. I friended her on Facebook. I don't know if I should say that, Mary. <laughs> you might be getting oh, you certainly can. <laughs> you might be getting a lot of friend requests. But I friended her on Facebook and then I started to meet her when she started to promote these hundred dollar dinner clubs. And I went out with a bunch of women and we would pull together a hundred dollars a piece and then go to restaurants and provide that pulled money to the servers that uh worked with us that evening and it's been an amazing experience and it was it's been a lot of fun to be able to be participating with you and your friends on on that level. I haven't made it to the last couple ones, but hopefully in September if you're still doing it, I will jump back in there. Mary, I'm so glad to have you today. Tell us about Mary Crafts. You have an amazing story. I think it's probably best if I let you tell it. Okay. You had a, an incredible business and catered a lot of amazing events, creating meaningful events and moments for other people in Utah. And it was beyond successful. Wasn't it rated number one culinary um, business in Utah? Culinary crafts, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think for 23 years, we've received the Best of State Award. And then we were International Caterer of the Year with the International Caterers Association one year. Wow. Um, I think we're definitely the most awarded catering company, certainly in Utah and maybe in the west of the Mississippi. And then so many wonderful personal awards came along the way, which I, I remember when I first received one of 30 women to watch. And I was quite a bit younger. I was like, well, I was 40, okay. But I thought, me? I'm... I'm someone to watch. What? <laughs> and but then that process of learning to actually believe in yourself, to love yourself, and through that resilience of grit of just getting back up every time being knocked over, um now I can say, yeah, 
I was one of 30 women to watch, and now I use that influence to really help other women to make it through the passageway of life, you know, moving from that fear-based kind of living where everything is done because you're afraid to love-based living, which everything you do is because you love, love yourself and others. That's what intrigued me so much about listening to your podcast and also meeting with you and meeting with some of the other women that you surround yourself with. There's a lot of women in the world that you may think that are your mentors or that you look up to, but sometimes if you spend much time with them, you'll, you'll find out they're one of those crabs in the pot pulling you back in. And the interesting thing for me to watch you is like, you have, uh, you're, you're so willing to share and be vulnerable with how you've created what you've created and to share your heart and that it is a process and there's work to be done. I think, That piece that you just talked about, Michelle, is one of the most profound, critical steps that we all must take, and that is a vulnerability, to be willing to be emotionally naked in front of people. And first of all, we're not doing it in front of the Dalai Lama. We're <laughs> we're doing it in front of other people who are completely messed up like we are, you know. Right. And so you don't know how what you're going to share with them is going to be received. But this much I know that the healing cannot start until the hiding stops. Yeah. And as long as we continue to hide our real selves, our ups, our downs, our our greatness, our weakness, as long as we continue to hide all of that, there's no way we can become close to another human being. Absolutely. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I do. And I, I think about this fear-based life, and there's so many different examples of, of fear-based li- living, but I think I was a great caterer because... I was so afraid. I was so afraid of of messing up. I was so afraid of being ridiculed. I was so afraid of of not, you know, making things right for people. I was afraid of not being paid. I was afraid of, I mean, I was afraid of everything. (laughs) So I was a really great caterer because I, you know, I went out of it backwards. But there was a shift in me somewhere along in that 35-year career where I shifted from living a fear-based life to living a love-based life. And then my actions were the same. I still took great care of people, but it was no longer because I was afraid of messing up. It was because I actually genuinely loved myself and loved them and wanted to provide for them and serve them and give them my very best self. So the come from, my motivation inside was drastically different than fear. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that you were still, you still had a strong company, even when you were operating out of fear. Absolutely. You you still, so we can be successful and still be operating off of fear and that lower energy level. However, once you made that shift, I bet the enjoyment of what you were doing increased. Oh, So much so. I felt like my blood pressure was lower. My resting heart rate was lower. I mean, even things like my 
cholesterol and my blood pressure just came down because I didn't carry that stress and tension with me all my life. I started catering this culinary crafts. I created that at age 30. And I carried with me for 20 years this fear-based living. And so by age 50, the company was already 20 years old. I was already hugely successful. I was already, you know, 30 women to watch. I was already awarded twice the Outstanding Businesswoman of the Year and still living this fear-based, crazy existence. Yeah, that is, it's so amazing. You know, if you're out there and you're living a fear-based life, it would be really easy to maybe miss the fact that you're doing it (laughs) because like you could be successful or whatever, but you might not be really in touch with like the come from the where you're at in it all. Right. You're so busy trying to make it all work and making sure that it, it all works and that stress. And I've been there. I've been there multiple times in my life. I had a profound experience just recently and I realized I had a moment where I I had an acknowledgement of self-love, and I know that you'll get what I'm saying. Mm. I experienced love and compassion and kindness for myself, and that's something I've never, I'm 52, (laughs) I'm 52 Mm. right now, and I just had this profound experience where I connected with myself and felt compassion and kindness towards myself, like I need to stop being so hard on me. Mm -hmm. These things that have happened or the grief that I carry or all of these things, they are things that are a part of me, but I am a good person. I am a lovable person. I am, there's a lot of good to me and I'm more than all of just the pain or just the traumas or just the hurts. And I just felt such love and compassion for myself and it's really shifted the dynamic of how I get out of bed every day. Absolutely. I think, Michelle, that in our community, particularly, we are have the dreaded disease of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. And so we judge ourselves so harshly when we're not perfect. And, and I'm a recovering perfectionist. But I will tell you this. Same. That striving to be perfect will kill you. Yeah. But striving for your very best self will inspire you every day of your life. Yeah. Yep. And how can we possibly ask more of ourselves than our very best? Yeah. And, you know, we don't expect that from other people, but we do expect it from ourselves. And and that does come from (laughs) you. You called me out on it. I, I, I'm a total recovering perfectionist. Um, I used to always live with my calendar, a planner, the busier I was, the, the better I felt that I was at everything, which was the complete lie. And, you know, I actually love being that driven and that busy and, and those things, but I was doing it from a place of not being enough. And now I'm like, fear. Yeah. Yeah. Fear of not being enough. And I'm like, you know what? I am enough. I'm enough if I do nothing. I'm enough if I want to just get up today and go serve somebody else. I'm enough if I'm going to have a busy day. I am enough. And it's taken me 52 years to get there. So that's why I love your podcast. Um, By the way, your podcast is called Crafting a Meaningful Life. 
If that's not marketing on point, I don't know what it is. <laughs> well, I love doing my podcast. I do it live every week, and it is, um, of course, they're recorded. You can find them anywhere on just Googling Mary Crafts Podcast or Crafting a Meaningful Life. Also on my website, they're all there, all 190 of them. And um, uh, my website, if you want to visit that, is marycraftsinc.com. If you just go to Mary Crafts, it'll take you to a clothing store in Florida. Oh, that's So funny. you have to put that marycraftsinc.com. But, you know, in regards to your podcast in particular about resilience, I want to share with your listeners how I see that and the role that that plays in a fear-based life and in the movement out of a mm-hmm. fear-based life. Yeah. So every one of those experiences that I was having in being with a very dysfunctional husband, bipolar, gay, rage disorder, uh, paranoia disorder, and, you know, there were times when I didn't understand that was my gift. My gift was working through those issues, was developing grit of being knocked down and bouncing back and being knocked down again and bouncing back. And that strength that we build through every one of those, what we may see as horrendous trials of our life, are actually our greatest gifts. I stand here today because of every one of those experiences that built the grit, the resilience inside of me. At age 50, this is back, of course, I'm now next week going to be 68, but 18 years ago when you still went to Kmart to develop your photos and um, get those things back from people. From and I came out of the store and sat in my car and went to the photos of my 50th birthday party. And I sat there and began to weep because as I looked at those photos of me, I thought to myself, she's smiling on the outside but so unhappy on the inside. And 284 pounds is what I weighed. Every one of those pieces of fear were building up as a protectionism on the outside of me. Now, I wear my, I wore my, my fear uh, on my sleeve. Other people carry it inside of them, and we never know the struggles they're going through, but I tell you that everyone is. Absolutely. And when I looked at those photos and wept, I thought, I don't know how I got here. I didn't think this is who I would be. But worse yet is I didn't know how to get away from there. And I had yo-yo diet so many times in my life, I thought I would probably never diet again. And as I sat there, I began to realize that that's why I weighed 284 pounds. 46% body fat, afraid to go to the gym, afraid to hike with my family, afraid to participate in everything because what? I would fail. That it was my fears that were keeping me stuck. Not because I didn't have willpower. That's a bunch of bunk. That we don't have willpower. It's because we're afraid. It wasn't because I didn't have the right diet plan for my body type. Nope. I don't care what plan you're using for health and wellness. 
None of them will long-term succeed until we're willing to look at what created the problem in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And as I began to look at this, uh, the fears that were holding me bound, it was amazing. A lot of people, I've lost now 140 pounds. And a lot of people say, well, did you use surgery or did you use pills from a doctor? You know, I'm not opposed to those kind of things, but they weren't right for me because for me, they had to be dealing with the fears. I had to prove myself resilient. I had to develop grit of what I wanted in my life. And as I developed that resilience and I let go of those fears, I don't want to say it was easy but it wasn't hard. It just began to happen for me. I would set small goals of losing 20 pounds. And when I got there, I remember the first 20 pounds, I went to my still husband at that time and said, well, like, you know, try, I lost 20 pounds now. Do, you know, do I feel any different? Does it, you know, he goes, nope. <laughs> you don't feel any different. You don't look any different. And, um, you know, it's all about you, isn't it? Just, you know, you want to lose weight, huh? It's all about you. And I thought, you know what? You are the worst naysayer I have in my life. And I knew I wasn't going to stay with him. I need cheerleaders. I need right. champions. Yeah. And so I started down that road. It took me six years to lose the weight. I started going to the gym, you know, the back row, all the way in the corner in the uh, big black sweatpants. And now when I, you know, I wear my little um, spandex, you know, yoga pants every day, people are like, don't you ever get tired of those? Nope. <laughs> Why do you wear those? Because I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. My legs are solid muscle. At age 68, I am the strongest woman at my gym. And I uh, I didn't start doing a lot of strength training until after I had lost a bunch of weight because you need more cardio at that point. But then I started strength training. And I literally am the strongest woman at my gym. People come up to me all the time. How how old are you? <laughs> I know. So, and when I tell them how old I am, of course, they really can't believe it because I'm in such good shape. I mean, at this age, do I ever think I'd have a six-pack? I do. And it's it's a great way to live. But that piece inspired me then, hey, I I can do something. I don't have to be afraid. Then I want to look at this issue in my life. And then this issue. And once you begin to let go of fear, you begin to gain a self-confidence, a love of self that you've never known before. And two things you learn. It's never too late. And number two, that nothing is impossible. I love that. That is an amazing, those are perfect perfectly said for life, right? It's never too late. When you wake up today, the fact that you woke up is a new opportunity. And I love that. And the second thing is that nothing is impossible. When we come back, I want you to share how you've created those two mantras in your life and how you've solidified those belief systems in your life and what you did to make sure that that was just written on your soul. We will be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. back with Mary Crafts. Mary, when we left, you were telling us there are two things that you have really lessons in life that are just absolute truths for you. One, it's never too late. And two, nothing's impossible. Tell us about where that drive from and, and how did you solidify that in your life? Well, everyone has those areas of their life that are pivotal for them. And for me, being healthy and well and fit was such a pivotal moment for me that I I felt like I wanted to do something that put my stake in the ground that said, okay, I'm doing this. Yes. And uh, when I was 60, I was sitting in a board meeting at UVU and uh, a gentleman had just returned from his final trip of summiting the seven summits of the world. And he happened to be seated beside me. He went up to speak. He also is the only individual that has summited the seven summits as well as sailed the seven seas. Oh. Only person in the world to have done this. And he lives right here in Utah. His name's Martin Fry. I was listening to him. I was so inspired by him. At every point, I felt like he's put a stake in the ground. He's put a flag there that he will be, he's, he's seen. And he will never doubt who he is and what he can do. I'm just like my mouth open because at this point I was already, you know, very fit and and uh, had lost my weight. And, and he came back and sat down, but I was also 60. And he was at this point, um, I think, 48. So he sat down and I said, uh, Martin, I want to do something like that. I want to do something that says I can, and I did. He turned right to me and said, you shall climb Kilimanjaro. (laughs) What? (laughs) What on earth? (laughs) This is a person who never set a foot on hiking. And I'm like, I will? And he said, yes, I know you. You can accomplish this. Now you just need to tell me by when you will do it. And I, I was already 60, and I said, well... Um, in the next five years before I turn 66? And he said, done. He said, we see each other a lot at a lot of different functions. I'll check with you all the time is how you're coming with your training and uh, when you're scheduling your expedition. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I came home and told my family and they were just like, what, mom? Are you kidding me? And so I just kind of began. I began hiking. I went and bought a pair of hiking boots. I I, I went on my first hike, and I was like, what? This is the best-kept secret in the world. Hiking is just walking outdoors. You know, it's like wow. I was so happy, and I began to hike everything I could find, you know, here in Utah. I hiked Timp. I went to southern Utah. I hiked all the, the uh, national parks. I just loved it. I began working more at the gym, doing the stair steppers and inclines and all those kind of things, and 
And yet I was afraid to sign up, and I knew I was postponing it. I thought, you know, there's no upside to waiting, Mary. Uh, you just get uh, older. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so finally, January of 2019, I realized I had just eight months left, and my goal would expire. It was now or never. So without even knowing if I was ready or if I could, I was 65. I signed up. I paid my money. I bought my air tickets. I did everything. I put the money down. They sent me this 22-page guide of what I needed to buy to to go up the mountain. And I just began acquiring it. REI and I became great friends. (laughs) Um, And... But then as I began to get close to leaving, I began to think, oh, all those same fears. What if I am not enough? What if I don't have the right equipment, which is the same as what if I'm not wearing the right outfit? <laughs> right. Um, what, what, what if I really don't have the stamina for this? What if I don't have the resilience for this? What if, I mean, just all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And what if I... What if I fail? What if I don't make it after I've told everyone? And it's all over my Facebook and and Instagram now that I'm going. And I'm just like, oh, I was afraid. Mm. The night before I left, I called my grandchildren around me. And I told them, I said, Grandma's really afraid to go. I told them all the reasons I was afraid. I kind of began to get teared up. My nine-year-old, well, my little Brina, who's now 11, said to me, Grandma, then why are you going? You're the strongest woman I know, and you're afraid, so why are you going? I looked right at her, and I said, Brina, it's to prove to Grandma and to all of you that I can do hard things. And that I am enough. And to put my stake in the ground. And when I get to the top of that summit at 19,400 feet, I'm going to call out each of your names to the world from the top of that summit. So the world will be on notice that all of you have the same blood as I do. You're made out of the same stuff. And that when you grow up, you can do hard things. And they just looked at me. And, of course, wow. you know, the first question they asked me when I got back was, did you call out our names? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, you betcha I did. And Amazing. now you know you are made of the right stuff. That is amazing. And I have chills. My body is just I just that physical confirmation of just the power of what you're sharing. And I knew this was my chance to finally look fear in the eye and say to myself, not today. I know who you are and I know how to conquer you. But I knew the moment I got there that I was in trouble because I was 15 years older than the next closest one. There were eight climbers in my expedition. They had all done Rainier. Most of them had done Denali, which is way more difficult than Killy. 
and some of them had even done Everest. Their training, their strength was unbelievable to me, and I'm just this little Utah girl. Uh, that first night, they I could tell they were afraid for me, and I'm like, you don't know me. I'm a badass. I'm <laughs> going to be able to do this. I'm going to be able to make this happen. And 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 I was trying to convince myself. And right off the bat, he told me, he says, I don't think your coat's warm enough. Well, you don't do an airdrop from REI on Kilimanjaro. Right. And I'm thinking, okay, so my clothes aren't right. And everything else that could possibly go wrong. The first day I was such a strong hiker through the rainforest, and I was going to show them. And then the next morning, I realized that, wow, I am still tired, but I'm going to get up. I'm going. And by the end of the second day, I was not the first person anymore. I was the last person in the pack. By the end of the third day, I told them, please don't wait for me. Hike on. I will get into camp when I arrive. And that night, I arrived 30 minutes behind them. Oh, wow. They were traveling in pairs, um, husband-wife team or you know, a couple guys, and I was alone. I didn't take anyone with me. And that began to weigh on me. I didn't know the emotional toll of being alone every night in my tent and hiking every day alone because they were had gone on. And I had an African guide that stayed with me, but he didn't speak English and just left to my own thoughts. And I began to doubt and wonder. And at every turn that I thought about giving up, I would say to myself, I lived a lifetime to do this, to show my grit every day, to be resilient, to rest as soundly as I can and get up again in the morning and push on, throw my arms open to the universe and say, please give me the strength to hike one more day, just one more day. Five days in, of course, it's the night of the summit, night before the summit, we're to get up at 11.30 p.m. so we can be on the trail by 12.30 a.m. And I didn't know if I would make it. But yet there was a peace inside of me that believed. And I held on to that resilience, that peace that said, you can do this. You've already climbed the Barranco Wall 300 feet straight up with handholds and toeholds. Surely you can do this summit. It's a 15-hour day. I don't know if I have the stamina. Yes, you do. And I began those self-affirmations, telling myself over and over again, nobody's got as much grit as you, Mary. You've built your grit through a lifetime. You can do this. You can do this. And we took off. Within 15 minutes, I couldn't see them anymore except for their little headlamps on their foreheads. And my guide told me that morning, Mary, there are only going to be three rules today. One, you have to step exactly where I step because I know the way and you don't. Three, that when we stop now for rest, it'll only be for five minutes, no longer. And I looked at him and I said, five minutes? That's all the rest I get? He said, the reason is, is because you'll be sweating and the temperatures are so cold up there. It's zero that the water will freeze on your body and become an ice sheet. 
and you'll get hypothermic and you have to come back down. Do you understand? Yes, I do. I understand. And the third thing is that you must eat and you must drink, even if you're not thirsty or hungry. I understand. I understand. This big African, who I will never forget for as long as I live, and we began to climb and climb, and the altitude was getting thinner and thinner, my breath shallower. He turned around and said to me, We've taught you how to breathe. Breathe deep. Take a breath every step, Mary. Every step. I will. Okay, I will. We started off at 15,000 feet that day, and we climbed. we're going to 19.4. So it was a pretty steep upward climb. Hand over fist, foot over, lift up, step up, go. I could hardly make my steps as big as his. And then one point I thought, I can't make that. I'm going to step to the left this way and then come around the rock this way. As I began to step to the left, he turned around and grabbed my arm just as I was slipping off. He pulled me up. And rather than saying, I'm so glad I caught you, of course, he gave it to me. He said, I told you to never step where I don't step. And I was like, please, can't you just be kind to me and nice to me? I'm doing my best. He said, no, there's no room for kindness here. I must be firm. All right, let's go. I won't step anywhere without you. He goes, and if you need help, ask. That was a lesson for me. If I need help, just ask. I began hiking higher and higher, the temperatures dropping. And I realized how cold my feet were. And I said, Big John, I think I've got, I think my toes are freezing. And he said, they're not freezing, you're moving. Keep moving. I'm like, okay, okay. An hour goes by. Big John, I think my toes are freezing. I think my toes are freezing. I'm serious. And he said, do you want some toe warmers? Yes, yes, I want toe warmers. I didn't know you had toe warmers. <laughs> and so we sat down on this rock, and I began to unbuckle my gaiters, which cover your legs to keep the rocks from going in your boots. And he could see how slow I was with my hands being so cold and my boots, two layers of socks. And he said, do you want me to do this for you? And I said, oh, Big John, yes, please. He carefully, with the most loving touch, which I had not ever seen from him to this point, took off everything of me and my stinky socks I'd already been wearing for five days. (laughs) And he put those toe warmers on. He put my socks back on. He put my boots back on, my gaiters back on. And I was so taken by his kindness. And I said, Big John, do you have a mom? And he said, yes. And I said, how old is she? 61. She's younger than you. When you're doing this for me, do you think about your mom? Nope. She could never do this. I respect you. I haven't ever told you that. I've watched you these, these days. You've got grit. We stood up to start again, and I started shaking. I couldn't stop shaking. Big John looked at his watch, and he said, Oh, my God, we've been stopped for 20 minutes. I had a sheet of ice upon me, and I couldn't stop shaking. I said, Big John, help me. I've got to go on. I've got to reach this goal. He took off his big warm parka and his mittens, 
and put them over mine, buckled me up, and he said, let's go. Within about 15 minutes, I was warm again. He saved my life. He saved my climb. It was the hardest thing as I've ever done. It was the hardest thing physically and the hardest thing emotionally I've ever done. When I got to the summit, finally, I turned and looked, and there were my teammates. I had been only 15 minutes behind them. And they were, we were able to take a photo at the top. After they left, I climbed onto the sign, grabbed a hold of it, and collapsed, my knees buckling underneath me. I wept and wept. And he said, Mary, we can't stay up here any longer. We've got to get down. The oxygen is too low. I said, I know. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a crystal that I had carried this whole way to leave on Kilimanjaro. I threw my crystal into the rocks and watched it disappear. Turned to the horizon where the sun was just coming up and shouted out, the names of my grandchildren. I had done it. I had been enough. The night before I left Tanzania, I turned and looked at the mountain for one last time. And what I realized was the biggest lesson it had taught me. The biggest lesson it had taught me was that the biggest lesson it had taught me was that it didn't matter what I was in Utah. It didn't matter who people thought of me in Utah or what I was or what I was about. It didn't matter all I had accomplished. The only thing that mattered was what I brought each and every day to the mountain. And that lesson has stayed with me. It doesn't matter the lessons of resilience I have learned in the past. It only matters the lessons that I bring to today and what I tell myself today and what I am about today. That is and that's the powerful. greatest gift that, that resilience brings to me. Yeah, that is powerful. I, there's just so much I want to talk to you about. We should probably take a break here when we come back. Okay. <laughs> there's just so much. I've got a million things I want to go and, and talk to you about. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. And we're back with Mary Crafts. Mary, I am so glad and so honored to have you on our show today. Um, I wish that Jenny could have been here. I know that she would have loved this. I I knew that you were powerful and inspiring and just a lightning bolt of energy when I met you, but I had no idea the story. And there's a couple things. You like to say um, that we need to get naked. We need to get vulnerable with each other. And you're not yeah. talking about physically naked. You're talking about the emotional... Um, Emotionally naked. Yeah. yeah. And um, it reminds me of a quote from Brene Brown saying, courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. 
And mm-hmm. I would say you're telling me that that quote just kept coming. I had to go look it up because I'm like, it kept coming to my mind while you're telling me the story. You exposed yourself to you. Not everyone in Utah or your grandchildren or your family members. There was nobody on that mountain with you. And who you really exposed yourself to was you. And that is, it's powerful. It's powerful to realize that when you start being vulnerable with yourself and you're willing to share that vulnerability with others, the power that it has Yep. You are such an inspiring person. I've been um, taking some life coaching courses um, to be certified. And I, mostly I'm doing it for, for myself and, and enjoying the process. But um, I, I see you and, and it reminds me of the whole kind of principle on life coaching in and of itself. When you do the work and you start healing yourself you give permission to heal others so by default mm-hmm. you're healing some of the traumas in your own family system from maybe not having done the work earlier right but you're absolutely get, you you make the way in the headroom for others to see that it's possible and that you don't have to let your experiences become who you are they can just be experiences and you can choose to learn great things from them and move forward or you can allow them to stifle you and stop you from being all of who you can be. But that's a choice that we all have. I One of the biggest lessons that I had to learn and move away from as I began to deal with these fears uh, is the the desire to be a victim. Because if I was a victim then none of this was my fault. And I didn't have to do anything but feel a victim because everyone else, and I could make excuses for why I was overweight, because of my husband, because of this, or it's in my genetics, or I could make, I I was a victim of so many circumstances. And the moment you leave Victimville and take the train somewhere else, the bad news is that those things happen to you, yes. But the good news is that you're 100% accountable for your reaction to them. Right. Now, you're not responsible for something that may happen in your life, but you're responsible for your reaction to it. Absolutely. And I always keep that in the front part of my mind, um, that I get to choose here. And I'm reminded of Viktor Frankl, who was in Germany and the he has written so many wonderful books of the power of the mind. And they took everything from him. They took him from his home in Poland. They, they, they took all of his possessions. They took all of his money, all of his, his home. I took all of that. Then they got the concentration camp, and they took his family, his children. And then they took his wife. And then they began to run experiments on him. They starved him. They took food from him. Because he refused to give them his mind, they took clothes from him. This man never gave in to the power that he had with his mind. He kept his mind 
He didn't allow, not allow himself to be a victim to these people, and yet they took everything from him. None of us in this life, where we live in Utah, can say we're even close to being the kind of victim that he was. But he chose to be accountable for having his own mindset. He survived and not only survived, but thrived. We all have that opportunity to not be victims, not only just to survive the traumas that we live through, but to thrive because of them. And that, Michelle, I, I love it. is the gift of resilience. Absolutely. You know, when we start showing up for ourselves, that's when real change starts to take place. You know, we start mm-hmm. start to show up in our own lives. We put ourselves first. We start to, you know, put on the oxygen mask little steps at a time. You know, like if you're a mom and you're letting your kids run you all day, it could be little steps. It could be teaching your children to honor some space and time for you. Like I've addressed your needs. You're fed. You're taken care of. You're going to watch this game. Mommy needs a few minutes. That's putting on the oxygen mask for you. We can't be everything to everyone in every moment. And we have to give ourselves permission, right? And so you could start with small little steps like that, but it's the willingness for us to make those small little changes. And every time we make small little changes in favor of ourselves, we get become stronger and braver and, and we can face bigger and bigger things. I love it. You illustrated that so well. You took on your health. You were in a room with someone who inspired you. You received a challenge, you took it, and then you found your way to actually achieve that goal. And it's it's really inspiring. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> climb any mountains. <laughs> Not my thing. But everyone's mountains are their own. Right. It's a figurative thing. Right. Um, Yours was I've literal. so many Kilimanjaros. <laughs> Since I've been home, right. simply because I've I've summited new things, uh, like starting my podcast, like writing my book, yeah, um, like speaking, and I invite people to. I I have limited. I think I only have ten spots to have friends on Facebook, but Instagram <laughs> is unlimited, yeah. and people can follow me on on yeah. Instagram. And my book that's coming out is called Unbounded: From Sorrow to Summit. And it actually teaches the how-to steps to move from a fear-based life to a love-based life. I love it. And that's my mission now. My mission is to empower myself, because you have to empower yourself first, empower myself and others to move from a fear-based life to a love-based life and discover the light within. I'm not any different than anybody else on this planet. Sometimes I might look different or look more accomplished or look a certain way, but it's not true. I am just like everyone else. Put my pants on the same, have the same sort of, you know, fears that everyone else has had. I mean, just I just farther down the road, maybe a little older, I've learned how to look at myself in the mirror and say, you are a beautiful person. You are so awesome. And to learn to take care of myself, 
you, you talked about that, Michelle, about taking care of yourself. I remember when I first started this journey, that was one of the, the excuses that I was using, playing victim. There wasn't time for me to take care of myself. I was running a catering, largest catering company in the state. I was running it. I had all these employees, and it wasn't time. I still had a daughter. My daughter was still at home, and I, I, I just I, it wasn't time. It wasn't yeah. time. Yeah, it's, it's easy, right? It's easy to make the excuses, right? Because we just don't want to, or we just we just haven't taken the time to prioritize and decide: is this a priority for me? Because the truth of the matter is, we prioritize the things in our life that do matter, and we do that all the right. time. We do it with our time and our money. So when people say right. to me, if I say, "Oh, I'm I'm thinking about going here," I, I've been traveling a lot this year, and they're like. Well, you know, I, I, I wish I could travel like that. Like, I don't have the resources for that. I'm like, well, you know, I also don't go to Starbucks every day. And, you know, there's other things I'm doing, right? Right, right. That, And I put together a lot of these things inexpensively. And I'm traveling with other people and we're, we're dividing cost. And so, like, you don't, when people say that to me, I'm like, that's just an excuse because it's not your priority. And it's okay that it's not your priority. You don't have to have the same priorities as mine. Right. Like my priority is not Kilimanjaro, but I have some other things that I really want to do. And I'm I'm working towards those goals. So I I hear what you're saying. I feel like we do. We either get into that victim mentality and I can't do it or that's not for me or I don't have the ability to achieve that. When in actuality, it's just really about priorities. It's about what matters to us. People who live in Victimville are afraid. It all comes back to fear. They're afraid to be accountable because if they are, then then they have to do something. Then they have to make movement. It's much easier to say that I'm a victim of this or here's my excuse for this than to say I'm responsible for all of this and I'm going to change who I am. That's the good news is that you are and you get to change what you don't like. And yeah. you get to make movement forward. Like when I was making excuses for myself about not going to the gym, it wasn't about the excuse. It was because I was afraid I would fail again. I was afraid I didn't have what it take to actually do this. So it was easier to make an excuse. So I began to write down all my fears. And I just realized I was just like strangling myself with these fears every day. Every decision in my life was fear-based. Should I do this with my children? Well, I don't know. Think badly of me if I don't. Should I do my visiting teaching? Oh, my supervisor will find out if I don't. You know, I mean, and, you know, the person I'm supposed to visit teach will be upset if I don't because uh, I'm supposed to, like, always come. And rather than saying, oh, my gosh, I want to come see you because I love you. Right. It's a whole different kind of being. And so if I'm lo- wanting to let go of those fears and to love myself, then it's time to take accountable for myself, accountability for myself, and know that I can change. Because what do we remember, Michelle, the two things? It's never too late. Never too late. And nothing, and nothing is impossible. That's right. I love that. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. This has been powerful, powerful uh, stories. Such a huge challenge to take on. I mean, 
your inner spirit must have been what climbed out of you and said, yes, I'm going to do that. <laughs> when you were talking to that, Mar- uh, is that Martin Fry? Martin Fry. Yeah. Yes, at that when- point. But I'd already looked at fear so many times. Yeah. Like the first day I was supposed to climb Timpanogos. And I had set a goal for September 13th. I was going to climb Timpanogos. And for the last 10 years, I'd had a post-it note on my bathroom morning mirror that said, what would you do today if you were no longer afraid? And I asked myself that every day. I'd think through my day and I'd think, oh, this is on my plate today. And because I'm no longer afraid, this is how I'm going to handle it. That morning, I got up to hike Timpanogos. I looked out the window, and it had snowed. Oh. I was like, what? In September. It snowed on the one day I was supposed to climb to Pinogas? And I'm like, well, that's my excuse. I don't have to do that now because I, I'm sorry. If they, I, no one would expect me to go up there, even myself, when it snowed. I went into my bathroom to start getting ready and brush my teeth, and I looked up, and there was that post note <laughs> that said to me, what would you do today if you were no longer afraid? I stood there, and I looked at myself right in the eye for a long time. And finally I said to myself, you would climb that mountain. And so I did. That is powerful. So many lessons, so many powerful opportunities. That goes right back to what we were talking to earlier. When you make the move to start showing up in your own life, you only create more courage and more bravery, right? It's self-affirming. And so the fact that you did that, I'm sure... That helped you play into every step as you went through Kilimanjaro. It's it an did. amazing. I would love to How have many you. Times I repeated that to myself. I would love to have you come back on, and maybe we could talk about this off air. But one of the other things, sitting here talking to you about this and hearing your story and being alone up there on that mountain, and we're both single and we're in the dating world. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about what it means to be alone and doing things on our own. I think it's a powerful experience. Um, I just got back from a weekend taking my kids out to Lake Tahoe in California. And I wasn't alone, of course. I had my adult children with me and stuff. But we did some things that I typically wouldn't have done. Uh, I bought a paddleboard. And I threw it in in the water. And I hadn't figured out how to get the fins on. And I'm like, all right, well, it's going to be really hard to stand on this thing without the fins. And I'm going to have to figure that the next time I bring this out. But for now, I'm like, I just wanted it in the water. So I sat down on it and I used it like a canoe and I took my yes. grandson out in the in the middle of the lake. And he's like, Grandma, go further, go further. <laughs> you know, at first he, he didn't even want me to go past the buoys. And then he was like, go further, go further. It was so fun to have him on there. And, and I sat there for just a moment as we turned around and started heading back to shore, and I thought, look what I've done. Look what I'm accomplishing. What you did. I would never do these uh, little things, just these little things. Like, my husband yeah. wasn't going to be interested in those kind of things. Like, kayaking and paddleboarding. My husband was big into motorsports, anything with an engine that would go fast, you know? And yeah, I see and now myself. I'll do anything that's not motorized. Yeah. <laughs> and now I see myself taking on new activities and doing things that I wouldn't have done had he still been here. And it's okay, right? It's just different. It's just that I'm getting to experience myself in a different way 
because I get to get up every day and say, what do I want to do today? Anyway, I think it'd be fun to have you back and talk about that whole concept because be. I, I heard that when I, you, you were saying that, and that's a whole nother line of learning how to do... Th- line, Michelle. Right. I want to acknowledge you, that you, in that very example, and I've watched this and I know this about you, are moving from a fear-based life to a love-based life. You're living and breathing what we are all talking about. Yeah. And so thank you for the example you bring to the table. Well, I appreciate it. I've always been a little bit of a mover and a shaker in my life, and I've always done things to really challenge myself, but I have never really asked why I'm doing it. And so for me, the difference is I'm starting to ask myself, what do I, Michelle, want to do? Whereas before I I was doing a lot of things for my family or for my children or for my husband and And actually, I had a lot of love and and pleasure in doing that. But now that I've had the opportunity, my children are grown, my husband is gone, and it's just me. And I've spent a little bit of time lost, took some time off work and trying to just figure it all out, you know. And I I have to just start asking myself different questions is what I've found out, right? I have to start asking, what am I doing for me? What am I going to do today for me? Which is never mm. anything I've ever asked myself. <laughs> I never right? I never considered that putting myself first even mattered. And now I realize there's no one here. I have to do it. I have to be the one to take care of me. It's such an interesting concept because we are conditioned to believe that if we think of ourselves first, that makes us a narcissist. Right. Um, that makes us very, very, you don't know anything about Christ-like love. And what we don't realize is that it is the first step yes. in not being a narcissist. Right. Is to think about yourself and to love yourself and to realize that it's all about you. Because if you don't have it be all about you, who is? Right. Exactly right. And you cannot possibly begin to love and take care of others until we know how to love and take care of ourselves. Well, and that's what I've learned over this past, really the past year and and starting into that coaching program for me was just so eye-opening because I've done a lot of coaching programs in the past and I've actually coached and done things in the past, but I took this on a, a project for myself, really, because I felt like lost in the world, like who am I now? I'm no longer John's wife. I'm not my kid's mom. I don't, you know, I have adult children. I don't have children. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I'm 50. Like, it's like I hit all of them. (laughs) I lost my husband. Six months later, I turned 50. And by that time, I'd already had all my last child move out of the house. So I became an empty nester, a widow, and over the hill, all in within six months. That's a lot for anybody. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot for anybody. So getting to this point, right? It's it's a journey. Like we are all walking this journey in life. And the one thing, if I could go back and tell my younger self as a young mom, I would tell myself, take more time for you. Not that I didn't take time. It's just that the time that I took was either being distracted on a phone or or doing other things instead of really actually re-nourishing my soul and my body and mm, also allowing yeah. my children to understand I need this time for me so I can show up better for you. 
And I wish I could go back and do that again. So if you're a young mom and you're out there listening, listen to what Mary and Michelle have to say to you today. Mm. Take you know, I the think time that for that you. Would be one of the most powerful podcasts to do a podcast where the three of us are on and we each share, what would you tell your 15-year-old self? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We should come back and do that. Jenny would love to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) And she's a mom. Jenny's a young mom. You know, she's in her 40s and she's got seven kids at home and and she's busy and she's starting a foundation for her husband. And so it would be really interesting even to listen to her because she has such a wealth of knowledge and, and a different come from, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So um, anyway, I appreciate having you on today. Before we get off, I just want you to be able to tell our listeners, bottom line, what does resiliency mean to you? It means that I can stand up again. It means that I can be like the old sand clowns dolls that you would punch, they would knock over, and what? Yeah. They would bounce back up. And that's what resilience means to me, is that I have the ability, because of all the lessons I've passed through to be resilient and bounce back up. If you don't bounce back up, life will defeat you. But having resiliency in my life means that when I get punched, guess what? I'm coming right back at you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you like what you've heard today, Please subscribe for free to our podcast. Give us a rating and review. It really helps us. If you do know someone or you have a story about real life that you would like to share, send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or you can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast and feel free to DM me or message me however you need to reach me. We'd love to talk to our listeners and we're going to be having some of them on our show as guests in the future. So whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other are dealing with in their own lives. Thank you. Have a great day. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.